George. I'm Leonard Lopate. In 1945, when Congress reviewed the record of the most conspicuous acts of Congress by the over 16 million American men and women who'd served during the four years of World War II, they recommended awarding the Medal of Honor to only 432 recipients, and not a single African American was among those honorees, despite the fact that over one million of them had served in the Pacific and European theaters. In his latest book, Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II, military historian and director Robert Child documents the incredible heroism of the seven black American heroes of World War II who were finally recognized for their efforts, but only after an incredibly long period of time and much work on their behalf. It's published by Osprey and brings Robert Child to our show now. Welcome. Good to be with you, Leonard. How are you? Okay. Uh, this is a fascinating story, but I guess not, not totally surprising. But let's go back to the beginnings. Not long after the birth of this country, soldiers who've exhibited bravery above and beyond their normal duties have been given medals for military merit. Didn't then-General George Washington initiate the process in 1782? Yes, he did. And uh, it was called the, the Badge of Military Merit, uh, which... Um, actually became a different medal, became the Purple Heart. Um, I always thought the Purple Heart was for people who were wounded, but that's not... Yes, yes. Um, But the Medal of Honor began uh, during the Civil War. And almost 3,500 medals of honor have been awarded so far. Fewer than 3% of those have been awarded to African Americans. Were other were they just overlooked, or uh, weren't there many acts of valor uh, over those years? Well, um, I have to say they were overlooked, but they were awarded to African Americans during the Civil War mm-hmm. and uh, the Spanish American War, and um, it was up until the 20th century that they were awarded to African Americans and the. It all changed uh, at the dawn of the 20th century. So, so World War One began the change. Yes, it did. And yeah. Yeah, go ahead. The um, uh, World War One, there was an absence of medals of honor for black soldiers up until the late 80s. As a matter of fact. And. Uh, well, the, the ones you write about in this book, it's, it's a little earlier than that, but not a heck of a lot, uh, right. 50 years after World War II. Uh, do we have any ideas why so few Medals of Honor were awarded overall for service during World War II? Well, it's, um, it's a very high bar um, to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Um, <clears throat> you have to have witnesses. Um, you have to have corroboration. So there's a a pretty lengthy process, excuse me, uh, to uh, determine uh, the merit for a recipient. And for black soldiers, as I write in the book and as was discovered in the study at Shaw University, um, there was an unspoken rule to not recommend black soldiers for the Medal of Honor. Despite the obvious heroism of the people you write about in this book. Yes, absolutely. Despite the heroism displayed by these men. So it's that was racism totally to blame? 
Uh, we're talking about Congress giving these awards. Was it, yes. Was it yes. Uh, racism among members of Congress? No, no, not at all. Uh, it was systematic racism, racism within the military, um, which had kind of come on in the early 20th century very strong. Well, you had to be recommended, and these people served in what was a mostly segregated military environment, so the people who might have recommended them would have also been African-Americans. Um, some African-American uh, commanders did recommend these men, but they, these men were primarily commanded by white officers, and the environment was that a lot of the white officers did want to re recommend these worthy African Americans for the Medal of Honor, but they knew they couldn't. So they settled for the uh, second highest medal for valor, which is the Distinguished Service Cross. But there was only one commander who stuck to his guns and uh, didn't do that. And that was Captain David Williams, who recommended the Medal of Honor for Reuben Rivers. Hmm. Uh, one of the people we will discuss uh, will tell that story a little later. Uh, I was uh, amused by the fact that certain words appear in the documents uh, that are no longer considered acceptable. Our, <laughs> the whole environment in this country has changed. Yes, yes. And I uh, add an author's note at the start of the book that this was a different time, and uh, things have changed yeah. <laughs> since the 1940s. Well, we're not even talking about the, uh, the obscene words. We're, we're talking about words that were considered acceptable at the time. I see. Right? I, see. I mean, words like, we don't, uh, you wouldn't be using even words like, well, colored anymore, or, or Negro. Right, yeah. Um, but at the time, the word colored was not, uh, which I discovered, was not uh, only for African Americans. It was for everyone of color, um, Latinos. Anyone who was not white was was labeled colored. So Latinos so you, and, and yep. people from the Middle East? Yep, yep. That was that was the, um, the definition, colored. So it was not only African Americans. And were they also denied recognition for acts of valor? I didn't look into that specifically, but that's a very good question. Now you mentioned that uh, uh, World War II—I mean, the World War One heroes—weren't uh, recognized until much later. Actually, it was the Obama administration where, that, where they were first recognized? Yes, it was. And it was uh, primarily due to the investigation by an author, Harndon Hargrove, who investigated uh, the soldier Freddie Stowers, who had been killed in action during World War I. And he investigated his case and presented his findings to the Department of Defense um, saying that he merited the medal and they agreed and they awarded the medal to, to Freddie Stowers. Actually, the second medal for, for World War I was 
was under the Obama administration. The first one was in the early 90s under Clinton. Or, or Yeah, that was, that was actually under Bush. Mm-hmm. Well, Clinton, uh, we'll get to Clinton as well. Uh, interestingly, Sergeant William Henry Johnson was recognized by France with a, a Croix de Guerre in 1919, yeah. but not by Americans, even though he was an yeah. American soldier. Yep, that is that is correct until the Obama administration. And there are still uh, soldiers from World War One that are uh, their history and service is being looked into for awarding the Medal of Honor. And you write about Sergeant William Shemin, for whom the anti-Semitism of the time meant that his feats of heroism during World War One were almost lost to history. So it wasn't it was Jewish soldiers as well. There, racism uh, stretched across the board, unfortunately. And, and I guess anti-Semitism is considered a form of racism. Yeah. Well, so were pretty much all of the people who were honored just white soldiers? The um, in, it, during World War Two, you're talking about? Well, I guess World War One, World War Two. Uh, well, I'll focus on World War Two because I I, I know that better. Um, what your audience may be surprised by is um, Japanese America. There were close to 19 medals awarded to Japanese Americans after World War II, a country that we were at war with. Um, Maybe trying to make a point there. Perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. Um, but that was surprising to me. Uh, but yet, you know, it took 50 years for these African-American soldiers to be given their due. And, and the group of servicemen you profile, uh, Lieutenant Charles Thomas, Vernon Baker, Sergeant Reuben Rivers, Willie James Jr., John Fox, Edward A. Carter, and George Watson, Watson, were not only heroic in battle, but also had to overcome endemic racism while they were serving in the military. Yes. Yes, they did. It was... Uh, Unfortunately, they had uh, a lot of obstacles to overcome. Uh, Growing up, most of them grew up in the uh, in the South, and people label it as the Jim Crow South. So they were used to, um, unfortunately, uh, feeling like second-class citizens even before the war. They just took it as normal to be segregated. Yes, yes, but. When they got into the into the military, they were treated even worse. Uh, many letters home uh, revealed that, especially from Sergeant Carter, that uh, he was, you know, getting flack from all the white soldiers because they wanted the, they wanted them to basically drop out. To drop out? Why uh, didn't white soldiers uh, think that uh, black soldiers could? shoot guns just like anybody else and maybe even be protecting their lives? Well, there was a... I asked myself that same question. What, what was the reason? And I've been asked that by several people, and I trace it back to... Uh, there was a study d- done in 1925 by the, the War Army War College about the service 
of quote-unquote Negro soldiers um, in war. And this study came to the false conclusion that black soldiers were not as uh, courageous as white soldiers, that they were not as intelligent, and so uh, so forth and so on, and that they could not be relied upon in battle. And that was in 1925, between wars, the between war period. And a lot of commanders knew and of that study and read it, so it colored their view of black soldiers going into World War II. How many years after World War II did the military continue to be segregated? It was desegregated in 47 or 48 by Truman, but it took several more years during the Korean War to, uh, for it to filter down, I would say. And uh, today, obviously, it's not segregated. My guest on today's Leonard Lopated Lodge is Robert Child, military history writer and film director. Uh, his latest book is Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor winners of World War II, denied recognition for 50 years, published by Osprey. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So it wasn't until 1993 that a U.S. Army commission determined that the seven men uh, whose names I've mentioned had been denied our country's highest award simply because of racial discrimination. And yet it, it wasn't until four years later in 1997, more than 50 years after the war, that President Clinton finally awarded the Medal of Honor to them. Yes, that's correct. It was the Department Department of Defense that awarded a contract to Shaw University to look into the case of why uh, black soldiers from World War II had not been recommended for the Medal of Honor. And the Shaw study took three years and came up with about nine names of worthy black soldiers that um, should be recommended. They didn't have the power to recommend these these men, but they recommended to the Army that these men be awarded the Medal of Honor. And the criteria was that these soldiers should have, uh, should have been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the second highest medal for valor. And as because, I mentioned Because what earlier, they had done was well known? Yes. It was, uh, it was recognized. And as I mentioned, um, Reuben Rivers was the only one that had not received the Distinguished Service Cross. He had uh, received the Silver Star after only a, a month in service in Europe. And uh, his commander, David Williams, um, really took up his case and fought for 50 years and was an integral part of the Shaw study to recommend um, Reuben for the Medal of Honor. And Vernon Baker was the only one of these men who was still alive at the time that President Clinton finally awarded the Medal of Honor to them. Yes, he was the only surviving soldier, and uh, he he was very emotional at the ceremony, and uh, he uh, thanked the other men for their service and wished that they could be there with him, but he recommended that, uh, you know, he said... We all did a 
We did a good job, fellas. That's what he said. We all did a good job. Should we assume that there were many other black servicemen and women who might have deserved recognition for their sacrifices and heroism during World War II? I, uh, that's, that's a broad assumption, but I would say that's probably correct, um, given the environment of, of the military at the time. And, well, they were uh, being fired upon, just like the white yeah. soldiers. Yeah, yeah, and um, but it, it was it was different because um, their their time in service was was shorter. Um, the black soldiers formally didn't enter frontline combat until January, actually February of 1945. Oh, late in the war. Right, because after the Battle of the Bulge in December 1944, Eisenhower realized that through attrition they were running out of soldiers and uh, they needed to add more soldiers to the rifle companies. And the idea was to develop to open uh, these rifle companies to black soldiers. And they, they sent out an invitation to black soldiers who were serving in service roles to, uh, they invited them to participate in, in combat. And so you had to, uh, you were invited to participate and you didn't, you didn't and, and if you didn't volunteer, you didn't uh, see combat? Um, pretty much. There were, um, they weren't pressed into service. The, the, the word went out that opened up um, these rifle companies to training in January of 1945 to black soldiers who were in service roles. And they trained them in, in northern France and other places um, to join frontline combat. But no, it was not a, they weren't pressed into service. It was for soldiers who, black soldiers who wanted to uh, fight on the front lines. And as a matter of fact, um, they were overwhelmed with applications, close to 5,000, when they only had uh, you know, room for about 2,500. I understand that in, in writing about these uh, Medal of Honor winners, you had very little personal background on some of them to work with. So how did you begin? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> that was my question at the beginning, too, because I, I wanted it to be absolutely as accurate as possible. And these men, not all of them left written records. So what I did was I started with the genealogy websites, Ancestry.com and other sites, Classmate, Class, you know, was it Classmates.com? Yeah. And traced their genealogy back to where they grew up, where their friends were, um, anything that stood out in their high school records, their work service, and uh, I found a treasure trove of information. Their, their draft cards, their work history, uh, the federal census um, was very helpful in the 30s and 40s, showing me where they lived, what environment they were living in on a farm, what their family consisted of. So that's where I began. Um, and uh, it helped me fill out their lives. Uh, 
in a, a way that was accurate. Now, you mentioned that, uh, that some of them come from the South, but for example, Lieutenant Charles Thomas was working at Ford in Dearborn, Michigan when he was drafted into the Army. Right, yeah. He, uh, his father was, um, was a worker at Ford, and he got his son. Uh, Charles went to college, um, a technical college in Detroit, and um, also began working at Ford as a molder. And uh, when the war broke out, he had to leave college without finishing it up, and he was working at Ford. And this, many people refer to this period, uh, late 30s, as the renaissance in Detroit of, of the black middle class, because he, he came from a truly black middle class family in Detroit, where things were economically uh, on the upswing. And he became a lieutenant. So uh, you, you got to move up the ladder to, to achieve that, don't you? Yeah, he was selected for officer training and uh, trained uh, to be an officer in Colorado. And it was a convergence of, for him, of two things. He was starting in a new unit. Uh, it was called a tank destroyer battalion. And part of the formation of that unit um, the Department of Defense required them for the first time, any unit in, in the military, in the American military, to have black officers. So he was um, given the opportunity uh, to become an officer, an officer candidate school, and then took command of a company in the 614th Tank Destroyer Battalion. So yes, it, he, he was an officer. And he um, served in France? Yes, he served in France. And uh, What did he his, do uh, that, uh, that led to his deserving to win the Medal of Honor? Yeah, he, um, he commanded his company in, in battle. He, he was assigned a little background on this. Um, they were, the 614th in his unit was assigned uh, task Force Blackshear to take a town in France called Clambach. Which it was, was on the Siegfried Line? Yes, it was, uh, which is, you know, right uh, on the German defenses. And his, they wanted to take this town because it was pivotal to moving through and on into Germany. And his role in the tank destroyer battalion was to draw fire uh, away from, uh, draw attention and draw fire out into the center while the rest of the army, the infantry, the 411th infantry could attack this town on the flanks. So they, they, they were the targets. Yes, they were the targets. So it was a, as I said, it's on a hill and he had to climb up this hill in uh, in their motorized M3s towing um, uh, two guns, their cannons, and the Germans who were located in the town um, opened up on his unit. They 
they were expecting some sort of frontal assault, but as you said afterwards, he didn't expect that much fire because they had hidden infantry in the woods that came out to attack them. They had tanks and German uh, 88 guns that attacked them. So he got basically assaulted from all sides in drawing this fire. And he, his unit suffered 50% casualties. Wow. He, he was wounded himself. And they lost, they had a total of three guns in his company. Uh, and uh, four guns, I'm sorry, and lost three of them. And uh, he was um, wounded in the chest, arm, legs, and stayed in battle to direct his men until he he lost consciousness, basically, and had to be carried away. Um, but his stand at this um, town that was occupied by the Germans allowed the American infantry and Allied infantry to encircle the town and take the town that day, later that day. What impact did those wounds have on him for the rest of his life? From talking with his descendants, uh, he he recovered fully, and uh, he, he didn't have any trouble as far as I could discover from the wounds. He recovered fully and um, went on to become actually uh, an IRS agent. (laughs) So uh, back in Detroit? I mean, in Back in Detroit. Yes, back in Detroit. Now, uh, had Vernon Baker experienced much racism at home in Wyoming? No. As a matter of fact, I bring that out in his chapters. Um, his he's lived with his grandparents because his parents were killed in a car crash when when he was only four, and uh, he was lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and he didn't experience um, any racism. He just didn't see it. So was and that a, was it a shock to him when yes. he entered the military? Yes, it was a total shock to him when he took the train down from Cheyenne. Um, to Texas and uh, was um, was told to uh, when he got on the bus to get to the back of the bus <laughs> and, and uh, you know for the ride to the to the army camp so yeah he was uh, he was shocked and, and angered go ahead. and wasn't a white officer given credit for the actions which he performed uh Yes, uh, I discovered that by cross-checking Vernon um, to uh, to tell folks what he did. He was able to penetrate uh, a German stronghold, a castle, um, and take out many of the gun emplacements, um, which his regiment wasn't able to do. His regiment got farther than any other unit um, his platoon got farther than any platoon in the regiment, and uh, he took out a number of guns. Here again, he he lost many men. He took 26 soldiers up in this platoon and lost 19, and uh, he was able to return back down uh, the mountain 
It was a castle stronghold. But his actual commander was a white commander who actually, um, during the initial engagement with the Germans and when they were being fired upon, uh, went and hid in a shed. And then <laughs> Vernon went back to find him um, because they needed guidance. They needed to, he wanted orders. And uh, the white officer said, well, we need reinforcements, so I'm going to go back down the hill and get us reinforcements. And that was the last they saw of the white officer. But meanwhile, and, he had single-handedly eliminated three enemy machine guns, an observation post, and a German yes. dugout. Yes, he did. And he was awarded uh, the Distinguished Service Cross while still in the... Um, European theater, but later, the following year, um, the officer, the white officer who retreated back down the hill for the phantom reinforcements, put in for a distinguished service cross, and his citation reads almost word for word the same as Vernon's, um, taking credit for um, taking out all these gun emplacements in the dugout and that really su surprised me and and shocked me and I've had many people ask if if I was sure this was correct and I said yes I cross checked it it's absolutely true this officer did claim the credit that's why I included the, his full citation so you could read it in in the chapters and he was embittered by it. He said, we fought fiercely and proudly for a country that shunned us. Absolutely. Yeah. He, uh, he, he was quite bitter um, after the war, but he kept it, you know, in the background. He knew he had to live his life. And, um, um, and he lived a long life. In Wisconsin. He uh, he retired to uh, to Idaho mm. and uh, to a hunting cabin. He he got um, married. He was married twice. His first wife died of cancer, and he remarried, and he retired and hunted in uh, Idaho. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Robert Child. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor Recipients of World War II. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And 
We thank you very much. And uh, again, online, that's given the number two WBAI.org. The telephone number 212-209-2950. We return now to Robert Child, whose latest book is Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor Recipients of World War II from Osprey. He's a military history writer, director, published author, won more than 26 writing and directing awards, including an Emmy nomination. And he's one of the only a handful of writer-directors whose work has screened in the U.S. Congress. <laughs> But how did you even come upon this story? Um, I came upon this story because I did an earlier project, the one that was nominated for an Emmy, called The Wareth Eleven, and a subsequent book called The Lost Eleven, which was about 11 black soldiers during World War II who were massacred in a war crime during the Battle of the Bulge, uh, during the opening days of the Battle of the Bulge. And this war crime was covered up by uh, the, essentially the, the, the war commission that investigated and cataloged war crimes. They swept it under the rug, and um, these men were forgotten to history. And uh, that was the story I did on, on black soldiers in the Battle of the Bulge, these 11 mm-hmm. heroes. and. That led me to thinking that there were so many stories about black soldiers from World War II that were untold, um, many, many untold from World War II. And I thought that the natural next step was to do a book or a film, and it ended up being a book, about the the Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II because I could really get into their stories. There, there was more information available than not, and uh, I figured why not start at the top. So let's talk about a few of the others. What, what happened with Willie James Jr.? Willie James Jr. was uh, a scout, and um, he served in Europe, and uh, he was another soldier who signed up after December 1945, when Eisenhower put out the letter inviting um, black soldiers into combat, he uh, he signed up. And uh, do we know what com- what their reasoning was at the time? Was it patriotism or something else that was motivating them? There was there was patriotism, but there was also this campaign during the war which was launched um, primarily by the Pittsburgh Courier newspaper called the Double V Campaign, which was victory abroad and at home, which meant for black Americans, if they could prove themselves, if they could win the war, fight toe-to-toe with the Germans, side-by-side with white Americans, that they would earn equality back home. That was um, a very popular campaign and well-known to black soldiers, and they felt like they weren't just fighting for this country, they were fighting for their, their equality. And many soldiers commented that, that you know, it wasn't just about you know, freedom, it was about their freedom as well. And 
that's uh, that's what drove many of these these soldiers to do what they did. Reuben Rivers went into the army with his younger brother. Yes, with the two brothers, hmm. as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, Reuben, do you want me to talk about Reuben? Sure. He he, sure. he, he he was in a tank unit? Yes, he was. He was in the, um, sorry, <laughs> trying to recall now, as things blur. Yeah, he was in the 761st. Uh, tank unit. He was from uh, Oklahoma and uh, um, grew up on a hard scrabble farm and uh, went into a tank unit and trained at Camp Claiborne, Louisiana as, uh, uh, as one of the first uh, all-black tank units, the 761st, which is now famous, known as the, the Patton's Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. And um, Initially, they were they they were overtrained. They were training down in the swamps of Louisiana as the war progressed, and many doubted in in the 761st that they would ever see action. Until um, General Patton, you know, put a call into the to the War Department and said, "I need tankers. I need tankers for this push, you know, that I want to do towards Germany." And uh, they told him, "Well, the only tankers we have left are the, you know, are the are the black tankers." And, and famously, it's reported that he said, "I don't, I didn't ask what color they were. I just asked him <laughs> for tankers." Good for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and they ended up um, activating the 761st, and Reuben was a part of that, and uh, he. Uh, served under his commander, David Williams. And uh, he was a natural-born leader. And uh, there was an incident where Reuben was part of the tank, the platoon, and uh, way in the back at at their first engagement. And uh, they were... Uh, following along with the infantry, which tanks did for support. And um, the infantry uh, got pinned down, and the uh, the tanks were also pinned down because it was a roadblock. It was a tree trunk with mines in it across the road. So the, oh boy. The, the tanks were trapped, and they couldn't go anywhere. So Reuben took his tank from the back, went around... Uh, his commander, who was towards the front, Williams, and Williams got on the radio, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and he, he kept going forward until he got to the tree trunk, jumped out of the tank under enemy fire because the infantry was pinned down, wrapped a toe, his steel tow cable around this tree trunk and jumped back in the tank all under fire and uh, pulled uh, this tree trunk with exploding mines that went off off the road wow. so the tanks could continue forward and that was his first action that's and then the he action. was he led he uh, led an advance against uh, fierce german resistance for 3 days despite having been seriously wounded yes yes after that action this is one uh, brave guy which earned him the silver star as a matter of fact uh, pulling that tree truck off so that 
tax could continue. They were uh, they were really the spearhead into into Germany, and the, his tank was crossing a, uh, a railroad crossing, and there was a buried teller mine uh, on the tracks, uh, buried at the tracks, which blew up under his tank and spun it around, and he was injured uh, severely in his leg, uh, so much snow, so he could barely walk, and his commander David Williams. Um, got up to, to Reuben's tank, and Reuben crawled out of it and couldn't even stand. And uh, Williams said, okay, well, you're going to the rear, um, you know, and, and he refused. And he said, I'm not, I'm not going back. You need me. So he hobbled over to another tank, jumped on another tank, opened up the hatch, and told uh, the commander of that tank to leave. So <laughs> he did, and Reuben got into the tank and uh, said, I'm ready to go. Sounds like the tanks are coming from you in the background. Uh, yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> some of these people were very strongly motivated. John Fox left a prestigious college to, to go to a different one because it had a ROTC program. Yes. Yes, one of only two colleges in the country at the time that had a ROTC program. And they accepted black soldiers? Yes, it was a historically black college. It was uh, Wilberforce University. And I believe the other college was Howard Mm -hmm. in Washington. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Robert Child. His latest book, Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor Winners of World War II, published by Osprey. One of how many books? You've, uh, you've published quite no, a few, nine no, nonfiction no. military histories and some military thrillers as well. Yes. Yep. And co-authored one, The Lost Eleven, with Denise George. Yeah, that was the one I spoke about earlier, about the 11 black soldiers during mm-hmm. the Battle of the Bulge. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, another interesting story here is the one of Edward Allen Carter Jr., who came yeah. from Asia. Yeah, the uh, soldier who graces the cover of the book. Um, Sergeant Carter was, um, his parents were missionaries, and he was born in California. His mother was Anglo-Indian. And they moved from Los Angeles to Calcutta and then to the international settlement at Shanghai. And his story, many people tell me, is, should be a movie. And I agree. Mm. Um, he, uh, well, he volunteered to fight with the Chinese initially. Yes, yes, he did. In um, 1932... He was uh, just 15 Jap- years old. Yep, that's correct. And... The circumstances uh, surrounding that were when the Japanese um, bombed Shanghai in 1932, the international settlement, um, because they wanted to invade and claim territory. Um, Sergeant Carter, Eddie, Edward Carter, was in the middle of that, and his parents went and, you know, sought shelter at their sanctuary. Um, church, and he decided that he wanted to go on. He wasn't going to stay around this 
church and do nothing. He he wanted to go, you know, seek some adventure. So he was attending before you know the war that um, that bombing uh, Shanghai Military Academy, and uh, he sought out the the Chinese 19th Army that was defending Shanghai, and uh, he spoke Chinese, and he asked to join uh, to join the their forces, and they laughed him at him at first, but they needed men, <laughs> so so they said, all right, we'll give you a chance. So he joined on the front lines with the Chinese 19th Army, fighting against the Japanese who were in, invading that area in Shanghai. And he only lasted a couple months because his parents were worried about him, worried sick about them, but they didn't know where he was. And finally, his father heard a rumor that he was serving in the, uh, in the army for the Chinese, and he found the 19th, uh, Chinese 19th Army headquarters and went to the headquarters and said, uh, I'm you know, come to retrieve my son. And they said, oh, well, he's doing a great job. We were just about to uh, elevate him to lieutenant. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, you can't because he's underage. He's only 15. And... Uh, and they said, oh, so <laughs> so his military career with the Chinese ended. But um, then four years later, he visited the American embassy and asked to be assigned to Abyssinia with yes. American troops. Yes, when the Italians wanted to claim territory, he thought that was another opportunity where he could, he could fight, you know, use his skills from the, you know, from... The front lines and they, the American, I don't think it was an embassy, it was maybe a consulate uh, in Shanghai said, well, you can't do that because we're not w at war with the, with the Italians. <laughs> so, and uh, so they turned him away, but they said, but we can offer you the merchant marines. So he enlisted in the merchant marines and served for several months in the merchant marines. Now, four of the Medal of Honor recipients in your book died as a result of their actions. Were they buried with honor? They were. One, uh, George Watson, was lost at sea, uh, saving other soldiers uh, when his ship was hit by... He, he lost his life attempting to save a, 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 a soldier. Yeah, including his commander. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he has a, a marker, I believe, in the South Pacific, um, but his body was never recovered. And um, uh, Willie James Jr. does have a marker in an American cemetery in the Netherlands. Uh, so yes, they are. Um, they do have markers, but and they were they were their actions recognized at least by the by others during the rest of their lives, the ones who survived? You mean the, the surviving? Yeah, the uh, surviving soldiers. Uh, were they celebrated at least in their communities, even though uh, it took all those years, uh, 50 years, for them finally to, to be recognized by the U.S. government? Uh, yes, actually, absolutely. Um, and I'll point out... Um, Charles Thomas from Detroit, when he came back 
Well, he was when he was wounded. It's the story I told about the 614th and mm-hmm. his lost half his men. When he was wounded, he was um, most of his men thought he was dead. They were just thought he pulled his body away, but he ended up surviving and spent time in a hospital in England uh, and was shipped back to Michigan and received his Distinguished Service Cross in the hospital, actually. But subsequently, when he received that Distinguished Service Cross, I think it was only a few weeks later or a month later, he was given a gala in Detroit um, honoring him. And at this gala, Jesse Owens actually attended the gala. Um, So these men were recognized. Sergeant Carter was also recognized at what they used to call Welcome Home Joe events, banquets. He was recognized when um, he was awarded the, his Distinguished Service Cross well, in you, Los Angeles. You said that they were uh, African-Americans were discouraged from joining the military until fairly late in the, in the war. But during Vietnam, uh, black Americans were more likely to be drafted than white Americans. Um, the highest proportion of African-American soldiers in the U.S. military up to that point, even though they comprised just 11 percent of the U.S. population in 1967, African-Americans were 16.3 percent of all draftees. Oh, I didn't know that. So I I don't know what happened during the Korean War, but uh, I'm not sure that this isn't a kind of a reverse discrimination that occurred during the, the Vietnam War. It's interesting you mentioned the Korean War because um, Vernon Baker served in in the Korean War, and I was curious about the Medal of Honor for Black soldiers in the Korean War, and there were several that were awarded to Black soldiers during the Korean War and awarded at the time. It didn't take five, ten, twenty years for them to receive their awards, their Medal of Honor. Awards, so I thought that was interesting when I when I discovered that fact. Well, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that racism has played a factor in America's history, including our our military history. Uh, is there anything else you want to add to this before we end this conversation? Um, just that when I wrote the book. I tried to write it so that you could know these men as human beings, not just that they were black and it was amazing that they did this, but so people could recognize themselves and, and aspire to what these men demonstrated, which was bravery and heroism. So I wanted people to just take these men as human beings, you know, not that they, you know, Obviously, they were black, but their deeds were something that inspire, and that's what I I want. I always try to tell people that. I want to thank you so much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Robert Child, who's a military history writer, film director, and author of any number of books. Uh, The one we've been discussing, his most recent, is called Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor, Winners of World War II, published by Osprey. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leonard. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, and by the way, uh, uh, Robert Child also has a podcast. You should try to check that out. But our podcast has surpassed 1 million plays, and it's available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And you can check us out on Twitter as well. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number, then give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. BAI relies 100% on on listener support. Uh, We don't take money from uh, foundations or anywhere else, which allows us to be completely free speech radio, but also puts us in a vulnerable spot at times. So we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor, recipients of World War II by Robert Child. Or you can also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thank you for that with a BAI tote bag if you become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, please give us a call, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. We're the only station in New York Radio that's 100% listener-sponsored. We hope that you can join us tomorrow when Mark Lamont Hill will discuss his new book, Seen and Unseen. We'll see you then.